Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... So there's nothing like a no to drive you to a yes. If you really want to do something, don't take no for an answer and certainly never ask permission again. I'd rather apologise later, you know. When Kim McKay was living with her family in London, her mum diligently took the kids off every week to visit the best museums there, including the Natural History and the Great British Museum. To learn stuff, her mum said. Little did young Kim know back then that just one of her later entrepreneurial careers would be to reinvigorate and revitalise the glorious but rather dowdy and slightly faded around the edges Australian Museum right in the heart of Sydney. But that's exactly what Kim McKay's managed to pull off in just seven years as CEO and Director of the Australian Museum, the oldest museum in this country and the fifth oldest natural history museum in the world. But it's how Kim McKay is transforming it from cajoling politicians who control the purse strings to inspiring scientists as well as donors and supporters in the public to building improved facilities and attracting great exhibitions. Now, that's a fascinating masterclass in leadership and executing an entrepreneur's vision. Yet Kim McKay's career journey is that of a maverick. She has no formal training in science, nor curatorship, nor had she ever run a major museum. But it was more likely her first successful startup that she helped transform into a global empire igniting the world's passion against ocean pollution that really taught Kim how to shake things up. That global empire was Clean Up the World campaign, which grew from a teeny tiny idea sparked by long-distance yachtsman Ian Kiernan. With his friend Kim McKay, who already had an impressive marketing and event background, the pair co-founded, initially, Clean Up Sydney Harbour, a one-off event they established in 1989. That totally volunteer-based community event, Kim and Ian ended up growing into the enormously successful and popular Clean Up Australia campaign. Building that not-for-profit empire taught Kim invaluable lessons in, well, never taking no for an answer and injecting passion for a project into all who cross her path or who write the checks. Hope you enjoy Kim McKay. Welcome, Kim McKay, and thank you so much for joining me on Build It, Thou Come. Thanks, Helen. Great to be with you. Your current position as Director and CEO of the Australian Museum in Sydney. You have been an extraordinary entrepreneur. You've been leading to the execution of hugely transformational ideas from concept to execution, which is the theme of this podcast. So let's start with the now. You've just overseen a major renovation and a whole new entrance to the museum, which has won awards for its design, including the top honour in this state of the New South Wales Architecture Medallion. Congratulations. Thanks. I think that's a 
really a tribute to our architects. Oh, well, look, it's, it's extraordinary. But you reopened the museum in late 2020, late the COVID year. But give us a picture of what the Australian Museum is right now, how important a cultural venue it is, how many scientists and employees you have, how many specimens you hold and exhibit, maybe even an idea of your attendance numbers. Helen, it's an extraordinary institution and one which I really love. That's why I think you've got to have passion behind everything you do. And I am passionate about the Australian Museum. We reopened to the public last November after a $57.5 million refurbishment. And I can tell you it has been extraordinary. I think the great thing about natural history museums particularly, and we're a natural history museum and a culture museum, is that we have widespread appeal. So we can appeal to the scientist in us all. We can appeal to the cultural sophisticate if needed. So it's great for families. It's great for tourists if we had any at the moment. It's just good for adults who want to be stimulated. So I think that broad appeal of a natural science museum is something that is at our very core. And we've seen extraordinary numbers of people flock back here since the reopening. In fact, we've recorded to date over 460,000 visitors, which is purely from the local market because, of course, there are no tourists during COVID at the moment. That's fantastic. When did you hit that figure? Just a couple of weeks ago before the current lockdown we're in right now. And that's extraordinary. It represents a 339% increase in our visitation. Congratulations. It's funny that Your podcast is called Build It and They Will Come because that's what I always say about the museum, build it and they will come. We've got these fantastic new facilities. In addition to that, we were able with the support of the New South Wales government to open free. So to get rid of that barrier of Mm. charging at the front door, and that has made all the difference as well. And also, I think, because we've had some very fun exhibitions on and interesting exhibitions too in that time. So it really is extraordinary to see the public flock back here, but also to see people we haven't seen before. I mean, I'm seeing a lot of people from Western Sydney who are immigrants to Australia. They are coming in three generations, the grandparents, the parents and the kids. And it is just fantastic to see the people come through the doors. And, you know, there should be no barrier to this. This is a taxpayer-funded institution. It's been here for a very long time. Of course, we were founded back in 1827. So we're uh, well on our way to turning 200 in 2027, Yeah, which is just extraordinary. And so we've got this amazing collection. Being a collecting institute is quite different than somewhere that just puts things on display. Our job is to collect the the history of the nation. And they say in the 53 largest natural history museums in the world, of which I think we're ranked about 35th, they say that we hold jointly about 90% of everything ever found on the planet, which is completely extraordinary. I, I say that we're, that these museums are the ark of humanity because it was our job when this museum was first established to record this extraordinary continent from its natural history perspective. We focus on the fauna, of course, on the animals of Australia. And our collection is the largest in the Southern Hemisphere. We have nearly 22 million objects and specimens. So this is one of the great things about the state governments all around Australia. 
is the Queensland Museum is a natural history museum and culture museum. The Melbourne Museum is a great natural history and culture museum. The South Australian Museum is an extraordinary one. And of course, the West Australian Museum, which has also just been rebuilt, is a phenomenal natural science and culture museum. So there is this coalition of us all. Also, the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery is one too. So yeah. down in Hobart. But we have these extraordinary institutions in Australia. It's just that the Australian Museum was the first and therefore the oldest, and we have the largest collection. Yeah. So how do you, and pardon my ignorance on that, but That's how right. do you feel you compare with the beauties of natural history museums? And I'm thinking New York, you know, London, Paris. Well, I think it's a good question. I think we hold our own in terms of the collection. The collections in some of those North American institutions, the Smithsonian, the New York the London Natural History Museum, of course, they're immense, much bigger than ours. But in the Southern Hemisphere, I think we really do hold our own well. And one of the things we've suffered from here, unfortunately, even though we've got these beautiful heritage buildings, is our floor space. We really should be a much larger museum to really show off that collection in the right way and to really deliver to our audiences, both the domestic audience and the international audience. So, you know, one of my great goals for the future is to continue to expand the museum. Yeah. Kim, because you are building and renovating and and people are coming, you are building and they'll come, you do compete with many other cultural institutions in this city and across the country, but you also have to compete, particularly for children and young people's attention, with iPhones and electronic devices, with the digital world, iPads. So what mindset change did you have to bring about even inside the museum to think about that competitive landscape outside? Well, indeed, Helen, uh, we compete with all of those things, but also we compete with any form of general entertainment. You know, we compete with a movie screen. We compete with an arcade alley and games. We compete with a football field. With a football, absolutely. So I think it's about offering people a richness of experience when they come here. The attitude that we needed to embrace at the museum was one focused not on ourselves, but on the external, on the visitor and their needs. And I hope we've really had that adjustment in the institution that we will only be as strong as the audience who visits us and who's interested. Of course, science is at the core of everything we do. We have over 100 research scientists who work here in the Australian Museum Research Institute, and they do groundbreaking science. And that's what we like to explain on the floor of the museum as well and translate that science to the public. So we've got to offer an experience when people come here now. It's not just a visit where you look at a static object in a case. What else do people want? And we know from all the research we do, When people visit a museum these days, they want the whole experience. They want to know as much as possible or be able to access the digital components to find out more, even when they go home. Plus, they want to have great cafes and shops. They want to be able to spend a day at the museum and really have a good family experience. They want programming and activities to do while they're here. So you really have to expand your thinking and be very creative about it. 
and yeah. ensure that when people go home back to their living rooms, they're taking their experience with them and they want to know more. So ensuring that our website is really interactive and up to date. And we have a huge external audience, of course, who visit the museum online. And that's very exciting too. So the change in a museum since digitization came into being has been quite significant. I spent years working in America for National Geographic and you know, the word edutainment was often thrown around that um, edutainment. Edutainment. Right. That education and could be coalescing with entertainment. And I guess it does in a way. You know, you look at the success on television of the documentary channels like Nat Geo Channel mm. or like Discovery Channel or the History Channel or whatever it is. So people like non-fiction television. They like documentaries in the same way they love coming to museums and galleries and having that experience. More people attend our cultural institutions and attend sporting events. Mm. And I think that's what we have to remember, that it's a broad church out there, that the community love doing all sorts of things. Just because I visit a museum doesn't mean to say I'm not going to go to the footy. Mm. You know, you can do it all. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that that's the fun thing about it. Yeah. So that's more or less a snapshot today. Let's go back to when you got this job just seven years ago, if I've got oh, my dates right. That's right. Did the board or the government, did the board give you the job and say, you need to transform this aging and perhaps dowdy institution and bring it into the 21st century? Or were the ideas to transform it all yours? No, they certainly weren't all mine. I'd love to, uh, I don't want to take credit for something that had been in people's thoughts for a while, but I had been on the board, Helen. So I'd spent yes. two years before I got the job on the board. So I had some awareness of the museum and there was certainly momentum on the board to want to transform the museum in some way without it being really clearly defined. There were various documents that have been produced over the years about that. So that was sort of bubbling along in the background. When I was lucky enough to be appointed into the role here, when I got the job, I didn't tell anyone I had it for quite a few weeks. And what I did was I came to the museum every morning and sat in the cafe that used to be near the front door on College Street and what just watched. I'd buy a cup of coffee wasn't a very good cup of coffee either, I might oh. say, at that time. I'd buy a cup of coffee and I'd sit there and I'd just watch what the public did, who came mm. in, what it felt like. I wanted to look at it through different eyes. You know, the eyes that you have as a board member are very different to the eyes that you have when you're being given responsibility for running the institution day in, day out. And I think that that's, was a, a good revelation for me because I realised that maybe we were not thinking about the right things on the trust. And I sat there and after a few weeks, it sort of dawned on me a couple of things. One was the entrance, which had been there for 145 years, I think it was, on College Street, was in the wrong place, that the entrance certainly should be returned to its original location on William Street. William Street had become this, you know, vibrant, busy street, the gateway into the city from the east with over 200,000 cars a day, I think it was, passing outside. And I was thinking, well, that's where our entrance should be. And I'd seen some earlier drawings which suggested returning it there. So that was the first thing. The second thing is having a cafe like that at the front door was bad because the first overwhelming thing that hit me when I walked in was the smell of hot chips. Ah, uh, <laughs> yuck. And, 
And to me, that's not what a natural history museum should smell like when you walk into it. I remember we were very fortunate when I was about five years of age, we moved from Sydney to London. So I grew up going to the great London museums and uh, other historic venues. My mother made sure that every weekend we had to learn something. So off we went. I had a vision of what the museum should be having gone to the Natural Mm. History Museum in London many times and the British Museum and so forth. So it was like, okay, we've got to change this straight away. And the carpet was in bad condition. You know, it was dowdy. It was green and pink in places. And I just went, oh, my God, it felt unloved to me. Now, it wasn't to say that previous people running the place hadn't loved it. They absolutely loved it. But maybe their focus was on different things or maybe they were trying to show the government that we needed more funding to improve yeah. the place, yeah. whatever it was. But 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 you're saying that you actually took ownership of the customer, the consumer, the visitor. Yeah. You looked at it through their lens. That's right. And, and it's much loved institution, you know, and I, I think natural history museums, they're very influential. In fact, they're the most trusted institutions in the community. And the reason for that is, I think, because we grow up visiting them. So when we're children, mm. we, we form all these wonderful memories of visiting these institutions institutions and that stay with us through our life. And then, of course, when you have children yourself, you bring them back. And as grandparents, you bring children back. And so it's a it's an intergenerational thing that occurs of these memories into deep in the psyche of when we were children. So they're much loved and very trusted. But this one to me, it, it, it was like a, it needed to be revealed again. It needed to have some love injected into it. And I, I went to a meeting literally with uh, the secretary of the department that oversaw the cultural institutions. This and, is with the New South Wales government. That's right. And two deputy secretaries. And I'd never worked in the public service before. So this was all was the, all very impressive to me. And up I went to the, the top of the MLC centre in Sydney for a meeting and, and I chatted to them and I said, thank you for giving me the job to run the worst looking museum in the country. And they looked horrified at me. And I said, have you been there? Have you seen it? And the three of them all admitted that they hadn't. Mm. And so I made them stand up. We were looking down onto the museum and come over to the window and to look at it. And I said, look, the entrance is completely in the wrong place. It's inaccessible. It's not friendly for people in with prams or wheelchairs. We need to change that. I think we could build a glass pavilion on the outside of the museum on William Street for a reasonable amount of money and see if we can change the impression of the museum and really liberate some floor space internally. Well, within a week I had that money. It was only $5 million, a small amount in government terms. Let me tell yeah. you. you cleverly put the argument simply and powerfully to them. The Louvre can put a glass pyramid out the front. You can put a glass box out the front to attract people. Well, that's people. right. And also the, the interesting thing about a glass box, which Crystal Hall is, and that, of course, was designed by the wonderful Rachel Neeson, uh, Crystal Hall is, is transparent. It was saying to the public, look into the museum. Yeah. Come in. Like, you know, because otherwise we were behind these big sandstone walls and you couldn't see him. And that can be very imposing for people. So here was something modern that was juxtaposed against the sandstone walls outside. And I think it's spoken volumes about, you know, um, a piece of architecture changing the perception of something. Yeah.
So, Kim, you got the money for that. Wasn't much money in government terms, as you say, but was the whole museum in a dire position, both financially and in its standing in the community when you took on the role? Well, I think the board had done a really good job under Catherine Livingston's leadership at the time of ensuring that there, you know, it was economically stable, but of course had never had any major additional funding. That's what it needed. And and over time, that became very clear. So how did you go about that change and getting that better financial underpinning, that better financial foundation? Well, it's a bit like being in business, and that's my background, of course, is that you have to prove to your shareholders or you prove to investors that your project, your institution is worth investing in. And I Mm. think that's what our job was with New South Wales Treasury and with the department we were in to demonstrate that this institution needed that injection of capital to be able to improve its presentation to the public and its access for the public, but also for the care of the collection. As a CEO of an organisation and your senior team, you have to gain the trust of not just your staff, but all the other people who are the stakeholders for your organisation. And it was a matter of getting that trust from the different areas of the New South Wales government to say, invest in us, we're worth looking after in this way. Yeah. What were attendance numbers like? Can you remember when you arrived and and did you make promises that you would improve them? Yeah, we did. Um, I think attendance was about 360,000 or 330,000 when I got here, something like that. And it was because people had to pay these fees at the door when we built Crystal Building Crystal Hall, the next thing we did was getting uh, kids free at the museum. So I convinced um, our minister of the day to make children free and that over time we'd absorb those costs. And I did it jointly with the Powerhouse Museum. Um, So, you know, it's often strength in numbers going together. So we Mm -hmm. got kids free. So I think making children free improved the the improved amenity of the buildings, better, you know, exciting exhibits as well and, and things to do and see. So our visitation did go up 20%, which was a very good number. And that was one of the government's key KPIs for us. But it wasn't the only one. And I knew that we weren't going to get there unless we went totally free. And, of course, there were many models to base this on, none better than the Art Gallery of New South Mm. Wales when Edmund Capon was there and the MCA, go free and they will come. And, of course, that's what we're seeing today. I really... You know, if we were in normal times and had tourism as well, which makes up about 30% of our visitors, you know, we would definitely be hitting over a million visitors this year in our first year of going free, which is extraordinary. Did you have to convince the government or have you a corporate sponsor to help you go free? No, we've um, worked with the government on this. They've been very supportive of the demonstrated need. We've been able to show them exactly what we predicted would happen happened when we went free. And so this new budget for the year ahead, the Treasurer has provided special funding to us and also Sydney Living Museums to be free this year. But I'm going to have to tackle it in the long term. I mean, of course, if you get more people, you're getting more revenue through things like your cafes and restaurants, through yeah. our shop through our programming activities, but will it be enough to offset that cost? So, you know, I really think that it's fantastic that people can come here for free and then they can afford to pay for a special exhibition. So our big blockbuster exhibitions that are held in the new touring hall we've just built, 
which is a world standard 1,000 square metre touring hall with an additional 500 square metres above it. You know, people will pay a fee for that and and be very happy to do so um, to get that added experience. And of yeah. course, we've just announced that we will be bringing Ramesses II to Australia. You know, people love the Great Egyptian Exhibition. We were going to open with Tutankhamun, of course. Yes. COVID unfortunately put paid to that. Poor King Tut went into lockdown in London before <laughs> coming here and then uh, the Egyptians took him back to Egypt and he's going to stay there now. Yeah, I'm laughing, but that was very sad that you you missed that. So, Kim, you'd, you'd been a trustee already, as you said, but when you came in, do you think yours was a big vision or a smaller vision for the museum? We'll just see how we go. We'll just increase numbers a little bit. We'll just get one, you know, a new entrance and that'll be great. No, it was a big vision. Yeah. In fact, to get the job, the candidates, the final candidates had to write a seven-page, Catherine Livingston stipulated what she wanted, no more than seven pages vision document to say what you would do in the first year, what you would do in the first three years and what your broader vision for the institution was and how to really elevate it and elevate its position in the city. And so I'm... I did something I hadn't done before. I had never run a museum. So I knew I'd be up against candidates who had run museums. I typically thought they'll be British and they'll be men because that's who run British museums. (laughs) And that's who apply for these jobs. When it came down to the final set of interviews, I took myself away for a week where I wouldn't be disturbed by anyone. And I just focused on this task. In other words, I treated it as a project to get the job. And I sat down and I did seven days of focused research and thinking. And I also indulged myself as well. I was staying in a hotel and I had some nice massages and things in the <laughs> afternoon and went for lovely walks so that I was very relaxed and so that my mind could really flow, the, the ideas could flow. And by the time I wrote my seven-page document, I was pretty clear on a couple of things. I was clear that I'd given it a lot of thought and attention and research combined with my general experience prior to to this. Then I knew that my competitors for the role probably hadn't spent that much time on it, Mm. that they were going to rely on their day-to-day experience, which is fine. But I thought, look, that will give me maybe a bit of an edge in a way that I have focused on it in this way. Once I really decided that I really wanted to do this, that I really wanted to make a difference with this museum and tackle something big, I think taking those steps to try and secure the role, which were just logical things you'd do if you were in your own business in that way, you'd take the time out to really think about it, to research it, to put your thoughts down in a logical way and on paper, and then be able to communicate it effectively. So I was pitching for myself, really, yeah. Oh, look, that's a masterclass in itself, Kim. What was the most important one key thing you did to produce what I would call a step change in thinking about the museum, both in government thinking and the public's thinking? Well, I think the important thing that we did was we put a vision document together not long after I got here as a sales tool, if you like, to sell it to government to say this is what we want to do in the future. 
And that was to try and get the funding to do a master plan. You know, governments don't spend public money in a willy-nilly fashion, believe yeah. it or not. You know, it takes a lot of time and commitment. And we needed to get the money from the state government to be able to do a master plan for the institution. And when that money was granted based on the vision document that we had, and that was a another department secretary who runs the department, sat down with me and he said, there's no vision document in for the museum that exists that I can see. You need to get one. So we worked on that pretty quickly and got the vision document. We got the funding for the master planning. And then we started working on that. And of course, we did what we thought was a really good document, a good master plan. It had a good business case behind it. It really returned a lot of value back to the community and to the public economically as well. So we felt that this was a goer. And it, in fact, it was greenlit, which was fantastic. But then, of course, an opportunity arose. And I'm a great believer that you should sometimes take some risks and go for the opportunity. And I thought it was going to be a big leap to get all the money we needed to build down on the corner. The museum has its own development site. We're fortunate to own that. So there's a 2,700 square metre site where our car park is and some older buildings that can be knocked down on the corner of William and Yurong Streets. So we have a, a site, which is unusual that, that an institution would own its own site adjacent to the main museum. So we had that, but Suddenly, this opportunity to host the Tutankhamun exhibition came up. I had worked a lot in Egypt through National Geographic, and I knew Zahi Hawass quite well, who used to be head of antiquities in Egypt. And he had told me that they, he was working with IMG on developing a Tutankhamun exhibition and said, you know, would you like it? Could you host it at the museum? And I said, yes, I'd love it. Leave that thought with me. We just need to expand our exhibition space. <laughs> so we <laughs> just did a whole new building to house yeah. it. <laughs> so what we did is we took part of the master plan and brought it forward. And we said to the government, look, if we can do this work now, which became the work of Project Discover, if we can do this now, we can secure Tutankhamun for Sydney. And it would be one of only 10 cities in the world. Now, that's an interesting ask for a government because I'm changing the playing field. Here we are. We did the master plan. I'm saying, look, we just bring this much of it forward and change a few things. We can host Tutankhamun as well. So it was like having all these balls in the air, you can imagine. Like I couldn't have one without the other. And so we worked very hard to try and get the money we needed for this project, for Project Discover through the government. And a week before the budget was locked, I received a call from a senior public servant to tell me, that we hadn't been successful in getting the money. And I was shocked because every step of the way, we were told we would. We'd met with everybody. I think I'd worn out of quite a few pairs of shoes walking up and down Macquarie Street. I was stunned. I sat at my desk and was just, oh my God, I can't believe this is where we've ended. I sat there, I think, stunned for about five minutes. Then I went, right, what are we going to do to change this? And uh, the next morning, I put a little strategy team together and we decided on our plan. We knew we had one week to get the money before the budget was locked. And so we set about doing that. And basically, it was pretty straightforward strategy. I knew that the only person who could make the decision in our favour was going to be the Premier of New South Wales. So I knew I needed to talk to Gladys Berejiklian. And she was fantastic. I actually got to see her on a Sunday morning. She was at the zoo announcing a koala project, which we'd been involved in. So it was logical we were there. And I had said to her office, look, I just need five minutes with the Premier to explain this. 
when she arrived, she said to me, oh, hi, Kim, how are you? How are things? And then she very kindly said, look, I know you want to talk to me. That's absolutely fine. I'm your premier and I'm willing to hear what you have to say, which I just thought was so refreshing and fantastic, I've got to tell you. And I had worked really hard that week on really refining our messaging and making sure that I wasn't going to waste any time, that that the five bullet points I was going to communicate, I had memorized and so forth. Anyway, at the end of this media announcement on koalas, I walked and talked with the Premier, gave her my spiel as to why this money was imperative, pulled out of my bag a drawing, a wonderful graphic of the museum with Tutankhamun signage on it. The Premier looked at me and she said, you know what? She said, this is great. Let's talk about how we can make it happen. Anyway, within a week before the budget was locked, I had the funding. Mm, Extraordinary. So, well, it's a little thing that I've always believed, a couple of things. If you really want to do something, don't give up. Now, sometimes things work against you, timing is wrong or whatever. But I knew this was a good business case that we had and I knew that it would work and be great. And I knew it would work for the museum as well. This opportunity to do a part of the restoration was really going to have a big impact. So it's a good lesson in saying if you really want something, don't give up. And and to take opportunities. Yeah, well, believe in yourself that you can do it too. You know, you've got to make others believe in you. Whenever you, I've had a big idea or big ideas to communicate, people have always said, look, you know, I believe that you would deliver this. You know, you've got to have a good team around you, of course, and a bit of a track record, but people invest in people. Mm. It's like, will you deliver? Will you come good with your promise on this? And if I give my word that we're going to do something, we will do it. You said you've never run a museum. You aren't a scientist by training. In fact, you did a BA in communications and journalism at uni. Yeah. When you sort of first started out, you were you started doing event sponsorships and you did some work for the BOC Challenge Solo Round the World Yacht Race, I did, and I did, surfing yes. events. Just really briefly, I mean, they must have been so much fun. But what did you learn from those jobs? And then I want to move on to some other big jobs you've had. Well, that was really the first decade of my career out of university. I started working on these big international sporting events and it taught me a great deal. Number one, it taught me about having fun at work, that I could travel the world on someone else's dime and get paid to do this job, which was fantastic. I got to see the world very early on and run these, learn about running big events and learn about promoting them and learn how sponsorship happened and, and how media interacted with them. And that was an incredible set of skills to acquire Mm. in my first decade of working. And I loved it. I mean, I liked, well, Helen, if anyone who knows me will tell you, I quite like being in charge. You know, I loved loved sitting there and, and putting all the pieces together and learning. And, you know, you make mistakes. Of course, I made some horrendous mistakes, but that's how you learn from things. And that I really, really enjoyed these big productions, these big events yeah. and realised that that was what I wanted to continue to, to focus on. And working on the BOC Challenge, the solo around the world yacht race, was a really interesting project because it was sponsored by this British company who owned, in those days it was called CIG in Australia. It started in Newport, Rhode Island, which sort of became my second home and went to Cape Town, South Africa, and then across to Sydney, and then from Sydney around Cape Horn up to Rio de Janeiro and from Rio back to Newport. It was a 27,000 nautical mile race. Mm. 
But these solo sailors, I, I learned a lot about single-mindedness. I mean, for example, both Kay Cotty and Jessica Watson are, are both wonderful personal friends of mine, mm. um, solo sailing women who I've become friendly with over the years, very close friends with. But before that, these male competitors in this race, they were very uh, self-focused. Yeah. Let me tell you, selfish might be a word you use, but I don't call it selfishness. What I called it was self-focused because they had to be to survive. Yeah. Is that how you met the round-the-world solo yacht sailor Ian Kiernan, who you then went on to form an extraordinary partnership? Tell us about that. That's right. So Ian Kiernan was a sailor from Sydney and he'd done a bit of solo sailing. He sailed his own yacht across the Pacific. And uh, Ian wanted to compete in that 1982-83 race but was unable to. He couldn't raise the money, the sponsorship here to do it. So he, as he used to laugh about, joined the committee. And it was through that he gave a lot of good advice and help to, uh, for us to stage the race. And it was really interesting. Well, for the next race in 86, 87, Ian did get sponsorship. Rod Muir from 2MMM, the radio station, the rock radio station in Sydney. Yep. Rod had taken up sailing, ocean sailing as a sport. And he said, oh, we need a, a yacht in that race. And he got Ben Lexon to design one, a 60-foot yacht. And Ian was appointed the the skipper, the solo sailor. Right. So how did that then evolve into the Clean Up Australia partnership? Because you co-founded that with him. That's right. Well, you know, obviously I got to know Ian like the other competitors in the race. It's a nine-month-long event. So you develop friendships with people and working relationships. And the really good thing was all of the competitors in the race kept all of their plastic rubbish on board. Now, this is 86, remember. This isn't the environment goes through different waves of interest mm. in the community. But here there were people seriously talking about the amount of waste in our oceans back in 86. Mm. God, if only something serious was done about it then. All of the sailors kept their plastic waste on board and in each port it was put together and weighed and measured because there are all these children, about 40,000 children in America, following the race as a school project. And so they were learning about what didn't go into the oceans, you know. And so the competitors kept their rubbish on board. And that, of course, once you start looking at rubbish in a different way as something that's harming the environment, you start to see it everywhere. And Ian, along with a number of other competitors, commented that they were seeing rubbish everywhere in the oceans, which is very distressing. Ian talked about Sargasso Sea in mid-Atlantic, mm. where there's this incredible golden seaweed, and he said it was choked full of plastic rubbish. Now, this is back then. This mm. is a long time ago. And it had, he said, plastic buckets and toothpaste tubes and all sorts of things trapped in, in the golden seaweed. So here was the visible impact of humankind's throwaway society out in mid-ocean. And that's very distressing to see. So when he came back to Australia, he walked into my office one day. He'd been sailing on Sydney Harbour on the weekend and he came in and he said, look, I couldn't believe the, the rubbish I saw on the beaches around the harbour, the tideline of broken glass, the plastic that had washed up on the shore. And he said to me, years ago, I saw a, a beach cleanup in Hawaii where a group of people sort of had a conga line uh, and had bags and they picked up the, the foreshore rubbish. He said, do you think that would work here? And I, I looked at him and I said, yeah, that'll work. Let's do it. You know, and it was, I turned around and I had an old golf ball type, IBM golf ball typewriter. 
And I sat down and wrote with Ian that first letter to the government of New South Wales saying, look, I'm really concerned about the state of Sydney Harbour and the, the plastic rubbish. I'd like to organise a community cleanup. I, I, as a solo sailor, I could get the sailing community involved. Could we do that? And that was another great lesson to learn because that letter went off and about eight, six or eight weeks later, we got the first response, the first or well, second letter on file, which said, Dear Mr. Keenan, thank you so much for your idea, but my department looks after the cleaning of Sydney Harbour and will continue to do so. Thanks, but no thanks. Thanks, but no thanks. So there's nothing like a no to drive you to a yes. <laughs> if you really want to do something, don't take no for an answer and certainly never ask permission again. Like I learned, I learned that asking permission was, I'd rather apologise later, you know. Oh, so it was amazing. great fun. We had an amazing time. When, when that letter came back, you know, Ian and I talked about it. I said to him, look, you've got a lot of friends who could be on a committee, people like John Singleton, yeah. people like Alan Morris of Mojo, you know, and so we put this committee of mates together basically and organised that first clean-up of Sydney Harbour, which was the 8th of January 1989, and um, I, I still joke that it's one of the best days of my life, which is pretty sad because it was about garbage, but <laughs> I had not seen that community spirit in Sydney on display before and yeah. 5,000 tonnes of rubbish were collected. We had 40,000 people turn out. How did you get people to join you and support you in this venue and did it ever occur to you that it would end up a global event with, I believe, now over 125 countries involved? Not, not to begin with, no. We were just doing Sydney Harbour, but what happened is... Literally that night, once the news story went out there around the country, people started to ring from across Australia and say, how did you do it? And so I wrote a little booklet called How to Do It, <laughs> which was how to organise a cleanup. And the first person who came up was a lovely man from Tasmania, from Hobart, who said, look, I'd love to organise the Day of the Derwent on the Derwent River and do a cleanup there. So, you know, I'd written down these bullet points for him of how to organise a cleanup. And he went away and followed it perfectly. And we went down for the cleanup of the Derwent. 10,000 people turned up. Oh, you're me. amazing. And that's when I said to Anne, look, this is incredible. If it can be replicated by somebody following some simple guidelines, then it will work everywhere around Australia. And because people have been calling. So we decided we've got to do Clean Up Australia. So the next year it was Clean Up Australia. And that first year in 1990 then, Nationally, we had 211 cities and towns involved. In fact, my whole faith in Australia was restored by meeting terrific people across this country who cared so much about their communities, but cared very much for their local environment and who all wanted to take some action and make a change and make a difference and not wait for the government to react, but to say, we care about this. We want to do something now. And all volunteers. And all volunteers. Yeah. So, you know, it was extraordinary. One of the things that saddens me when I think back on that period is if only business and governments had taken more action at the time, we wouldn't maybe in as much mess as we're in today. Yeah. I went to many meetings with Ian and other people about reducing waste, about minimising plastic, about increasing proper recycling rates back then 30-odd years ago. And business just... I don't think wanted to invest. Government didn't want to force them into it. And now we're seeing the consequences of that 30-year mm. delay on something that could have changed. 
you really were, both of you, ahead of your time. Kim, you were deputy chairwoman of both Clean Up Australia and Clean Up the World, as I understand, and partners with Ian Kean and in it. The Clean Up the World began in 1992. Just briefly, how did you convince the UN Environmental Program to partner with you? And was that important to get them on board? Uh, Yeah, it was actually. Uh, It was so fantastic. So just like we'd had letters and phone calls from around Australia, we started getting them from around the world. People saying in different countries, how did you do it? And and could could you send us your materials? And I always felt, especially with developing countries, sending off these materials made for a developed country like Australia were probably inappropriate. A representative of the United Nations Environment Program was in Australia and had met with Westpac because Westpac very early on, who were our major partner, had done a lot in in the sustainability realm. We met with this representative from UNEP and UNEP and told him about the project and he'd heard about Clean Up Australia. We showed him, I had a a file of international letters. I think we had something like 40 different countries represented in the file. And I showed it to him and he said, well, what are you saying? And I said, well, with some help, we could do something international here. You know, maybe we could help, you know, I think Ian said to them, clean up the world. And we all laughed and he went away and came back to us. These were in the days before the internet, you know, we were communicating over a fax machine. And for people listening who don't know what a fax machine is, it was a funny little thing we used to dial up on. We communicated with UNEP on the fax and, and then we got an invitation from Dr. Mustafa Tolba, who was a very famous global environmentalist who ran UNEP, who invited us to Nairobi to the headquarters to talk about this idea for a community cleanup around the world. Boy, you know, it was like such a huge opportunity. Yeah. So we went to Nairobi and met with him and he had my proposal. I'd written a proposal one weekend for how it might work. And he had my proposal in his hand. It had red pen all over it. I said it was always like seeing the headmaster, except this had headmaster had machine gun soldiers at the door, you know, clad oh. with machine guns. Anyway, he went through the proposal with us. And at the end of the meeting, he said, look, I'll give you $100,000 to explore this. And we were felt very happy, of course. It was exciting and really a great opportunity to see if the same sort of communications program could work internationally. And then UNEP came back to us and I, I went into work one weekend to do something and there was a fax from the, my machine that said, look, we'll still give you the 100000 US, but you've got to find matching funding for it to get it off the ground. And, and it was right at the height of the recession we had to have. And I'd heard about an organization in Los Angeles called the Egg Bar Foundation, which stood for Everything's Going to Be All Right, <laughs> and um, who funded community cleanups in America. So I thought, I'll go and see them and get the money. And I rang Qantas and booked a ticket. I thought I'll pay for it myself because, you know, we'll, we'll get the money. It'll be fine. And went off to LA with, and met a friend in Los Angeles. She, uh, I'd worked with her on sailing and I got her to print up a business card for us in America. So we had a US address. Yeah. Anyway, we got in to see Mr. Eggbar. And at the end of the meeting, he said, yeah, I'll give you $100,000. Incredible, right? Fantastic. <laughs> to match Fantastic. it. And I think, I think UNEP was stunned too when I sent them a fax back saying, oh, yes, no problem, have the money. Yeah, got the money. Wow. So that really helped you kick that off.
I want to move on, Kim, because there's still so much to get through and I, I don't want to hold you up too long. What did you learn and love about that decade you were in that job of the Clean Up Australia, Clean Up the World campaign? I really loved using my what I'd learned through thought, actually, so about strong communication. Most of these sort of community participation events, you want to change behaviour, you've got to have a participation element and you've got to be able to communicate clearly and effectively with people. You've also got to trust people. This was a volunteer network around the world and around Australia. People are very clever. If they're passionate about something, give them some guidelines and they'll go off and do it. Uh, and that's basically what happened. So it was it was a tremendous to build a virtual organisation before the, the internet, really. Did you stay really good mates with Ian Kiernan? Because, of course, he was really the front person, wasn't he? He was, absolutely, and that was his role. You know, that was his passion. The original idea came from Ian and he was very committed to that long term. Yeah, yeah, we remained friends you know, I moved to America and spent, you know, a decade working with National Geographic. I think that it's very sad, of course, Ian passed away yeah. a few years ago now. He had cancer. I think he was um, 78 when he passed away. But he remained committed throughout his life to clean up. And the cleanup organisation still goes on today. His daughter, Pip, is chairman of it. And so Clean Up Australia still exists. I'm not involved. You know, I think I've done my time. You know, yes, like yes. when you, you give your all to something and I did it for a decade and it was time for me to move on and do other things. Yeah. So you did move on Discovery Channel and particularly you became responsible for the Discovery Eco Challenge Endurance Race. Now, this was a massive event and documentary production. It was started by someone who's turned out to be the reality TV king, Mark Burnett. That's right. Survivor and The Apprentice fame much later. But briefly, what did you learn from that role? Oh, look, it took what I knew to a new level, basically, because the budgets were much bigger. You know, I'd focused on the not-for-profit sector in the clean-up years. Now I was working in international television. And- yeah, and you were living and working in in Washington, D.C., weren't you? That's right. I moved to Washington, D.C., where Discovery was headquartered, but lived a lot of the year in Morocco where we were doing the project. So I lived in Marrakesh, which was incredible. And then the second year wow. we were doing it, I lived in Argentina, in Bariloche, in Patagonia. So it was an extraordinary experience. It was an extraordinary to be part of such a big production and big event. And yes, I worked with Mark Burnett, who went on to start Survivor and so forth and has become hugely successful in television in the United States and around the world. Yeah. So what did you learn either from him or being part of that massive endurance race? Well, what I learned from Mark was actually to have very defined goals for yourself. I was probably more an accidental success in some ways. I had goals for the projects, but not personal goals as such. Mark had very clear personal goals mixed with his business goals. And I think that that taught me about the importance of goal setting, of saying, I've got an objective, I want to achieve yeah. it. So working on Discovery Channel Eco Challenge, well, it was thousands of people we were taking to different countries. And again, I worked about the power of media, I think, Helen, was the thing 
that yeah. really underscored the experience for me that the influence and reach of media globally. Yeah. And it was a great experience. And from there, you know, I was in Washington. And from there, I went to work for National Geographic Channel, which I said I'd found my home. You know, I, uh, people who work at Nat Geo say that yellow flows in their veins. It's the <laughs> world's number one brand in that category. And for yeah. a good reason, you know, it. It's a trusted brand and it, it was just an extraordinary place to work and to be yeah. able to be a bit entrepreneurial there as well. Yeah. So, Kim, do you think of yourself as an entrepreneur or a change agent? A little bit. Nat Geo allowed me to be a little bit entrepreneurial. I co-founded a project there with a scientist called Spencer Wells called the Genographic Project, which was in the very early days of DNA testing. So we had this kit that we sold publicly around the world, launched it in America. We had principal investigators, scientists from around the world. I sort of had thought, you know, this this new DNA technology tells us where we came from. It was about deep ancestry. And I felt that if I could explain to somebody in Iowa that they were related to somebody in the Middle East, maybe it could, I don't know, solve some things. Greater understanding, you know, having education is the big leap forward for everybody. To promote education and understanding is what changes things. And it was a great time to be there and be allowed to be entrepreneurial. I I remember the president of National Geographic saying to me the night before we launched the Genographic Project, Kim, do you think we'll sell any of these kits? And I said to him, yeah, we'll sell 5,000 on the first day. Well, we sold 5,000 in the first hour. Wow. It was extraordinary. And we had a bet, actually, that I wouldn't. And it was a $20 bet. And I walked up to his office later that day to collect my 20 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> Kim, I've got, I want to move on. I mean, you're an incredibly positive person. If you read the media stories, either about your journey or the museum or Nat Geo, it's always that it's always been smooth sailing, pardon the pun about the round the world race. But is failure often close to the surface when you do entrepreneurial things, when you try new things? Well, I think if you are a bit entrepreneurial, yes, you have to be a positive person, which can always get you in all sorts of problems. Um, <laughs> but you've got to be a bit of a risk taker to do that. You've got to you've got to be comfortable with risk. Right. So failure is going to be nearby. Yeah, it is. It's always going to be there. But of course, I feel that the risks I've taken in my career, certainly in the work I've done, are considered risks. You try and mitigate failure. Mm. Like no one wants to fail. Some great entrepreneurs in the world, the really big business people who, you know, have lost millions and made millions and so forth. I've never felt comfortable in that way. I'm a typical Australian woman in the sense that I'm quite conservative about my own money and risking money. And I don't have a lot of money, so therefore I don't have to be that worried about it, I suppose. If you're willing to take on something and you're willing to try it, the risk is failing. But you've got to be prepared for that. And I don't mind that. I don't mind having a go because nine out of 10 times you might succeed, you know. Like you learn from those failures. Failure is probably even the wrong word for it. Um, The missteps, you learn from those. You try and minimise them. You try and minimise the harm they might do to people. You're doing things, underscoring everything I've ever done, I hope, is the need to want to contribute to the community to improve things. So it wasn't about getting rich ever, if you get yeah. my turn. Yeah, yeah. When I met Mark Burnett, he was all about getting rich. That was his main goal. 
And I, I, I remember thinking, really? I've never had that. Yeah. What's the toughest thing you faced in your journey? Oh, that's a hard one, Helen. Um, resources, finding the money, mm. uh, finding people who'll back you and give you money. I mean, it's really hard in the not-for-profit sector particularly to get money. Philanthropy in Australia is still in development. It hasn't reached that level of the United States. So it's always about finding the money. What would you say to young people wanting to pursue an idea or be entrepreneurial or drive something to build something sustainable? Do it and have a plan and don't take no for an answer. I'm mentoring a really wonderful young woman at the moment who is a champion iron woman. And she's very committed to the environment and taking action. And she's studying science at university at the same time. And I'm working with her so that her goals can be realized. And it's so much fun. I get so much inspiration from her. So I think just have a plan and go after that plan and don't let anyone try and stop you. Kim McKay, it's been a complete delight speaking to you, CEO and Director of the Australian Museum. Thank you for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Oh, thanks so much, Helen. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.